Well, thank you, Charles, and thank you to the elders for giving me this, this time to talk with you. I just want to start by just sort of remembering some of the things that we've been learning about over the last few weeks, remembering how Dave has been presenting from God's word to us about various jurisdictions of authority in, in civil government, there's the church government, there's family government. All of us have personal responsibilities to God and yet all these individual but separate governments that God has set up are all individually responsible to God as well. But we're not responsible to God for what somebody else does. We're responsible for what we do. And so I'm going to be telling you a little bit about what we do at Family Protection Ministries. Our mission at Family Protection Ministries is to protect the right of parents to train, educate, and care for their children privately without government interference. Um, and that might sound a little complicated, and it might seem odd to you, perhaps maybe more three or four years ago, it might have sounded odd that we would have a whole ministry set up just to, to protect those freedoms full time, but it's actually something that's been under attack in California and around the world for many years. In fact, our organization was set up back in 1986 to protect the rights of parents to raise their children as God would have them. And the primary focus initially was, was homeschooling in California because that was under attack. And in 1986, that was actually a bill that was set up to, to actually abolish homeschooling in the state of California. And so here we are today, many years later and many battles later, looking at um, the state of our state. And as you know, we've, we've dealt with a lot of issues, particularly as Dave has mentioned, in the last few years, and we've seen the way that God has continued to protect us, his people, and our ability to, to raise our children, to be able to worship, and yet we still see that there's this constant bombardment of um, anti-Christian, anti-God mentality in our society. And so our job in Sacramento at FPM is to protect our freedom and to try to be a voice in the ear of the king. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says that, that God has control over the king's heart. It says the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he pleases. Now this may not seem to us on a daily basis like that's the way that it works, but God is bigger than us, right? His ways are higher than our ways. And so sometimes we just have to just trust God and pray and ask for his help in knowing what to do. You know, James tells us that we can just ask for wisdom and he will give it. So it can be a real challenge sometimes to understand what God's doing. And we can't, we can't know the mind of God, but we can know that we can't just stand by and be silent. We have to speak up and say something. And so our work in Sacramento, we, what we do is we look at legislation. And there's a lot of bills. Every year there's about 3,000 bills proposed in Sacramento. And so that's a lot of reading. That's a lot of legislation. And that doesn't count all the times they change their bills, which happens all the time too. So with about 3,000 bills introduced, which just happened, by the way, about a week ago was the deadline. So they introduced about 3,000 bills over the last month. 
And that means that we have a lot of work to do reading these bills and trying to figure out how will this impact the family? How will this impact Christian education? How will it impact homeschooling? How will it impact the church? And so we are constantly having to go through these and throughout the year trying to figure out what impact will this have on us, but also what can we do to make a difference? And if you recall, Dave a few weeks ago talked about being a voice and speaking up and, and saying things when we see something evil being done. And there's a verse that I want to read in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, it says, And do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. We have to be out there knowing, we have to be aware of this stuff going on so that we can speak up. So we first have to be aware and then we have to speak up and we have to expose these things. But we can also, in our society, we are a, a government that actually hears from people. Now, it may not sound like this much, okay? It may not feel like they hear us very often. But I want to tell you a couple stories that hopefully will, will make you think about this a little bit more. A few years ago, we had a bill that was going to impact homeschooling specifically. And the... The, the emphasis, the focus behind where this bill was coming from was there was a group of people that were trying to shut down some of the church-based schools and some of the church-based homeschool programs in California. They did not like the, the sort of radical Christians having a, any say in education. That's where this was coming from. And so this was in 2018. And there were actually two bills that year that were directly opposing this homeschooling idea. One was specifically home inspections, and the other bill was creating a whole commission for how the state would oversee curriculum choices and require teacher certification for all the teachers that any, any parent that wanted to homeschool, the state would oversee their training and oversee their curriculum. So we were very concerned about this. It would change it would change Christian education, it would change homeschooling, it would change the way that families had freedom in California. And so we were uh, involved in a lot of strategy, trying to figure out, well, where is this coming from? What can we do to make a difference? And ultimately, ultimately, we ended up, for one of the bills, asking people throughout the state of California to call the author of this bill, asking the author, Miss Eggman, to just stop and just pull her bill. And I met with their office many times, and the people in her office got to know me pretty well, and um, they kept trying to get me to just, just back off and, and give them, they kept asking for more resources, which I always had. I always carry lots of resources with me about information about homeschooling, information about private education, how well does it do, um, on the tests that they use and that they rely on. And ultimately, at the end of, of that, they were asking me, would you please stop the phone calls? <laughs> and, and I said, well, it's, it's going to be up to you because if you pull your bill, the phone calls will stop right away. <laughs> and, um, and so ultimately what happened was uh, this, they asked me to come into their office several times to ask me to stop the phone calls. And at the end... They finally said, well, I don't think this, this bill does what these people think it does. And so I started going down the list and saying, well, what are they saying? Well, they're saying this. It doesn't, um, they're saying 
that uh, the bill requires the state to oversee all their curriculum choices. And so I happened to have a copy of their own bill, and I put it on the table in front of her, and I said, well, it says that right here in the bill. And I don't know that the author or any of the people in the office had actually read their bill. And she said, oh, I guess it does do that. Well, what about this? And they said, she said, well, it, it requires, it, they're saying that it would require parents to be certified by the state. And I said, well, here's that right in the bill. And they were shocked that, I, I think they were less shocked that this stuff that they didn't know about was in their bill, and they were more shocked that I was able to answer every question that they had. And that wasn't because I know everything. It was just because God helped me to be prepared for that meeting. Ultimately, the next day, they pulled their bill, and we were able to make the phone call stop. <laughs> they were so concerned about the phone calls, though. Let me give you a little taste of what this was like for them. They couldn't call their own staff because their phone, call, their phone system was being shut down because parents throughout the state cared. When parents care enough and they, and they get involved like this, it can make a significant difference. So sometimes it may not feel like when we do speak up, when we do say something, when we do expose them like it says in the scripture for us to do, to speak up for those that are weak, we can have an impact. It's not that it's, not that it's fruitless. It can make a difference. And so... And I'm not saying that we have to see fruit in order to obey God, because sometimes we don't. We just have to go in faith and do what God says to do. Another time I was in the legislators, I was in a legislator's office. This was probably uh, about 2012, 2013. And in this particular uh, office, the the phone lines were really busy, and I was asking, well, what seems like things are pretty busy in here today. It was a friend, I was visiting with a friend in this office, and he said, oh yeah, that's all your people calling in about this other bill. And, and I said, oh, wow, okay. Well, and it made me think, well, should I stop them from calling my friend's office, because it was kind of tying up all their phone lines. And he said, oh no, keep the calls coming. This is good for us. And it helps us to have a voice to be able to say in committee hearings, we've been getting lots of phone calls. In fact, in another situation, I was in a committee hearing, in an education committee hearing, and the vice chairman of the office, of, of the committee, actually said, I was going to vote yes for this bill. This was a, a bill that would have taken some parents' rights away in terms of education choice for their children. And in this particular case, the, the vice chairman spoke up, his name was uh, Rocky Chavez. He spoke up and said, I was gonna vote for this bill, but I've been getting so many calls at my office that I haven't been able to sleep at night because it's been bothering me so much. Now, I don't think it's just the calls that are bothering him, I think there's something else going on there because I think God has an impact because God has uh, these, the hearts of these kings in his hand, right? Like channels of water. God can have an impact, and he can use us to make a difference there. So, there was another uh, bill that particular year also, in 2018, that uh, got a lot more attention than the first one with the phone calls, and it actually ended up with a bunch of people at the state capitol. Uh, thousands of, of people showed up, and they, um, I, 
but before, before that particular hearing, when, they, when all these people showed up, I remember visiting with uh, the vice chairman of the, of the education committee in the assembly. And in this particular case, he wasn't that thrilled to meet with me. He was willing to do it because his chief of staff was a friend of mine. And I met his chief of staff, actually, through someone at this church, Cameron Pope, who was working for me at the time. He knew him in high school. And um, so he was a homeschool graduate now, and he was working as the chief of staff for this legislator, Assemblyman Kiley. Well, Mr. Kiley wasn't super excited to meet with me. Um, he wasn't really into homeschooling, and this particular bill was about homeschooling. And so in this case, he did meet with me, and he, didn't, he listened to what I had to say, but when I left the meeting, I thought, oh, I don't know what's going to come of this. Well, a couple of days later, after I'd been trying to figure out, like, what's our next step, I got a call from somebody else, also from this church, and it was um, Miss, Mrs. Allison Ford. And she said that she had um, invited Mr. Kiley to come judge at a debate tournament. And I, I, I said, okay, well, I'll be praying for that. I hope that it goes well. And I thought that's really interesting that he, was, he, he actually went and he was willing to do that. When that bill actually came up in the committee and Mr. Kiley uh, had finally the floor when he was allowed to talk, he gave the best, the best speech on parents' rights in the choice of education that I have ever heard. And it was because he just simply had an experience where he was able to talk with some, some families that were serious about their responsibility in, in raising their children. It was parents that cared about their children and he thanked the parents. He thanked the thousands of parents that showed up in his committee hearing that, that day. He thanked the parents for being involved and for caring about their children and about the hours that they put into raising them. And I tell you this because it's important for us to realize that it, it can ma make a difference, not just for winning a bill, which we did that day, but for winning over people that maybe are more soft now than they were before. In fact, that day, it's, it's usually a big deal when thousands of people show up at the state capitol, right? I mean, people usually, uh, there's, there's some people that get worked up and the, the security is on high alert. But at the end of that particular day, the head of security asked me to stay until he had locked up. And he actually told me the groups of people that you had here today were the most organized and respectful people that I've ever had to deal with. Our, our testimony comes out and it shows. I still have a great relationship with that guy, Ahmed. From, that, was from, that was from 2018. And he still treats me like I'm one of the in people in the Capitol building. And I really appreciate that, but I know that that comes from the testimony that we had that one particular day. So we work on, we work on legislation that impacts the family, impacts the church. There's, there's been a lot, of, a lot of bills that we've dealt with. I'll just tell you about a couple of them. Um, mandatory psych psychological evaluations for every person in California every three years. Does that sound kind of scary? 
that was a bill a few years back. Um, last year, uh, a social worker assigned to every person in California at birth so that they could um, monitor us. And let's see, there's, some, there's a number of others, uh, counseling, there's been a number of bills dealing with counseling. Like, you can't counsel someone to the point where it negatively impacts their self-esteem or might lead them to remorse. There are all kinds of what I would consider really crazy bills like these others. We dealt with a lot of bills dealing with uh, transgender rights last year. The ability of children to make transgender medical decisions for themselves without their parents' knowledge or consent. These are really egregious things. And they're an affront to God. And we need to speak up when stuff like this comes before us as our society moves to embrace these wicked things. And so, what can, what can we do? I would ask you for, there's three things that you can really do to help us. One is pray. Pray for us as we look through these 3,000 bills right now. We've got kind of a pile that we have to go through. Get, pray for wisdom for us as we go through these bills. Pray for health for all of us. Pray for my family. Um, I also have a part-time staff at the office, and over the years, there's probably been about 20 people from this church that have worked in my office, and I'm really grateful for all of them. And we, we have a lot of work to do, and it's, sometimes it's really not fun. But God has blessed the work that we do, and I would ask that you would just pray that God would continue to give us strength and energy and just the patience to deal with our, our government, such as it is. Also, uh, you, can, you can take action. You can sign up for our emails. You can volunteer in our office. We do have mailings that go out, and we need some volunteers here and there. A number of you have done that. Thank you so much. Um, so there's some things there you can do. You can get involved in action when we send out an action alert, an email asking for people to either make phone calls or, or uh, to show up at a Capitol hearing, things like that. Um, you, can also, you can also donate financially to our organization. Um, and there are some things that because you're nearby where, we, where our office is, um, I speak to people throughout California. Our organization is, is supported by, by families and by some churches throughout the state of California. And we're a nonprofit organization, and that's what keeps us going, is those, is those donations. But something that you guys can do too, because you're here, and, and many of you have done this, is support our family and support our staff in a lot of different ways, and I've really appreciated that. One of the things that we're uh, looking at right now, um, Jeff Campbell, who um, isn't here this morning, but he's on our board of directors, and I've been working with him on trying to find people that can maybe uh, help by offering a room for an intern that's coming to, our, to work in our office from out of town. I actually started as an intern in this organization a little over 20 years ago, and this church willingly found a home for me with Jeff and Carolyn Campbell uh, when I first started, and that's how I actually ended up here. And so I'm grateful for that, and I'm really thankful for uh, the, the efforts that many of you have, have put out. So I would encourage you to consider how God would use you. There's so many... Um, so many different things that you hear about in the news that are happening in California and across the nation in politics. 
we can make a difference. And God, God will ultimately judge those that do wrong. They will. He, he will judge them ultimately in the end, right? We know that. But in this time, we can also stand up and make our voices heard and speak truth and be that voice in the king's ear like Daniel or like Moses speaking truth. So thank you so much. Um, God bless you. And um, we'll, we'll have some materials out back afterwards and I can talk with you then. Thank you. I gain uh, no end of pleasure in thinking about the fact that the Lord has taken Nathan, who is the nicest guy on planet Earth, who is one of the most soft-spoken and gentle uh, individuals. If I remember right, at a at a at a at a a couple's dinner here, that Nathan revealed their the day he proposed, he, he fainted. <laughs> the, Lord, the, Lord, the Lord has taken that man <laughs> and put him before the powers that be in the name of Jesus. It's, it's awesome. And uh, what he won't tell you, but I will, um, is that uh, you know financially this battle's gotten more difficult. A lot of the people who started this ministry are... Um, advancing to heaven, and many of those who supported this ministry in California have decided that Tennessee and Texas and wherever else are, 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 a, are, are a better place to be, and so there's, there's been a dwindling support base. So if the Lord moves in you to support them financially, that, that would be a great thing, and of course we can, Nathan, support you guys in prayer and Ask for wisdom and health and all the rest. We're grateful for what you guys do. Well, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Pastors oftentimes work hard at the titles of their message. Um, this message is entitled, Stephen, a Remarkable Man. Now, that is not a remarkable title for a message, but it's what came to mind as I considered this amazing man of God. I don't know how much you envision the final day of your life, if you ever think about it much. Some people do, others do not. Maybe you wonder what you might say in those final moments. There are those great texts in Scripture of great men and women in Scripture who have great statements as they depart for the kingdom of heaven. And history is also replete with the final words of those who have died apart from Christ, some of them despairing and tragic, others just empty. I was reminded this week of Frank Sinatra, who famously sang, I did it my way, who confessed with his final words before he passed, I'm losing. Well, our passage this morning, we come to the final day in one man's life, and we'll be here for a couple of weeks, 
And we have a record of his final words. And they are anything but sad and shallow. Far from the turmoil and terror that confront the masses in death, this is a man, Stephen, who is marked by courage. He's marked by calm. He has a certain hope of life to come. And by the grace of God, his life will leave a dent. He will demonstrate faithfulness to his Lord and Savior. He will proclaim the only message that can bring salvation to sinners. I look forward to taking a look at this man's character, the power of his words, and, and finally the way, the way that he died. Now, last week we saw, didn't we, this, this trouble had arisen in the early church between the, the Hellenists and the Hebrews, and there was disunity that was on the horizon and... So the folks came to the apostles and the apostles derived a plan and they decided to delegate to the church the responsibility of coming up with seven men who would be faithful in the discharge of the relief to the widows. As Jim brought up earlier, it is amazing that out of the thousands of men that the church could have chosen, remember the church is running tens of thousands strong at this point, Of the thousands of men who could have been chosen, they came up with a pretty elite crowd of simply seven. Of those thousands of men, the seven are chosen, and there are only two of whom anything else is said. One is Stephen, and the other is Philip. And it's interesting as you look at this book that following the introduction of these two men, the next couple of chapters will actually be bound up in two of the longest sections of Scripture recorded uh, uh, messages in the book of Acts. You, you look at Stephen's sermon, it is the lengthiest in the book of Acts. It's noteworthy simply for the space devoted to it. If you were an author and you took a large section to record something, it would probably be because you think it's critical, it's vital, it's important. Luke must have seen something in all that happened with Stephen to give so much ink to to his message. And I think we can figure some of this out because Stephen and his sermon provide really what amounts to a very important development in the book of Acts, actually two of them, two seismic shifts, if you will, The first one, what we begin to see is that this thing that's been percolating called persecution is now going to get to a full boil. And you are going to see that jailing and flogging is going to give way to murder. It's no longer just the Jewish authorities who are going to be uh, hot with with the apostles and, and, and the church, but it's going to be the broader population that will be growing increasingly antagonistic. And the result of that persecution is that the church is going to be bounced out of Jerusalem and out into the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. And it will be suffering that will drive them out. Tertullian's words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, is the truth. Persecution brings about the conversion of sinners. And we need to arm ourselves with that reality. The second thing that we see, the second transition here is that the church 
begins to make a very clear break with Judaism. Up to this point, the church has been worshiping where? On the temple grounds. They've been attending the daily prayers. And now you're going to see that Christian doctrine, the truth of Christ, these things are going to, to, to increasingly grow clear and there's going to be a greater division between Judaism and Christianity between Moses and Christ. Theologically, this section begins to define the very issues that will separate Christianity from ancient Judaism, and it begins to explain the hostility that the Jews had toward the early church. Well, let's read together Acts 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and were arguing with Stephen. But they were unable to oppose the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. Then they secretly introduced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him, dragged him away, and brought him to the Sanhedrin. And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man never ceases speaking words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus, the Nazarene, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin saw his face like the face of an angel. Father, take these words in the short time we have left. We pray that you would multiply them to us by your spirit, that you would give us illumination, that we might see your work in a man and acknowledge that though he is remarkable, he is remarkable because you have made him such. Lord, it is by grace that we are saved. It is by grace that we are sanctified. It is by grace that we are what we are. Help us, Lord, to learn from these things, and we pray that you would continue to conform us to the likeness of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. We're just going to break this text down into four scenes. That first scene is this. We see the depiction of Stephen, the depiction of Stephen in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. After Stephen's stature among the church, the first thing that stands out as we saw last week in this is this man's Christ-like character. He's a man who is awash in grace and truth, just like Jesus himself was full of grace and truth. Stephen, in fact, is a a full man. He's a full measured man. He is, he is filled up. He is a spiritual stalwart. He is a man, verse 5, who is full of faith. We saw last week that he believed in Christ. He believed the word of God. He believed God. He trusted God. And it's clear through the preaching of chapter 7, which if you're in home fellowship groups, you'll read tonight, that this was a man who knew the word and he trusted in the word and he believed in the God of his word. 
He's also a man who's full of the Holy Spirit. He lived his life under the influence and empowerment of the Spirit of God. He followed the Spirit of truth. He lived out a life of complete submission to Christ by the Spirit. Our verse here in verse 8 tells us that Stephen was also full of grace. There are a lot of ways we could take that, and I'm not sure that we can pin it down exactly, but there was something about this man that was so like Christ. He was willing to serve and to suffer without fear. He lived a life in which his life was ultimately taken from him, but that without resentment, that without cursing his persecutors, that with with kindness and with mercy and with compassion. He was full of grace. The text also tells us he was full of power. Again, like Christ, he ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit and he was doing things as as signs and wonders again that demonstrated the veracity of his message and it validated his ministry. He was doing, verse 8 says, great wonders and signs among the people. He, He was, I'm sure, casting out demons. He was healing people. All of that is not laid out in front of us, but knowing how these words are used in the rest of Acts we can draw some conclusions about what it was specifically that he was doing. Verse 10 says that he is full of wisdom. He had that unique quality of being able to take God's knowledge and and insight into things and apply it to the, the realities, the practical matters of life. He was a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power, full of wisdom, Acts 7, as I said, he is full of scripture. He will die for his faith in front of a frothing crowd, demonstrating that he is a man full of courage. He was the very first martyr in the church, and even in his dying, beloved, he was full of compassion, praying for his persecutors, just as the Lord Jesus, Father, forgive them. He was a man who was full of love, love for Christ and love for neighbor, love for his kinsmen according to the flesh, that he would proclaim the truth to them. There is nothing malnourished spiritually about this man. There is nothing lacking. He is whole and he is healthy. This is a Christ-like man. If we were to sum it up, that's what we would say about his life. Stephen is a Christ-like man, gracious, truthful, wise, powerful, compassionate, merciful, devoted to others, devoted to the Father. And the verb tenses here teach us that these things were characteristic of Stephen's life. They were not merely evident, you know, when he got out of, the right, got, got out of bed on the right side or, or, or when he had eaten his Wheaties. It, this isn't fits and starts for Stephen. These, these are the things that characterize this man And it wasn't just God who knew it, but the fact that he was chosen out of the thousands of men and leads the list of the seven who were picked says that this man had a reputation for these things. We don't think about Stephen enough, frankly. By the grace of God, Stephen is a remarkable man. He's worth noting. 
He's a man of reputation and a man of renown. He's, he's the kind of man you might name your son after. He, 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 he should have a place of honor in the church. And his place, frankly, in the church, uh, in being honored, is, is too low. And it, it's not that he would mind that. He's a humble man. He's serving Christ, not us. Like John the Baptist, Stephen stands in a long list of those whose faithfulness burned bright but burned short. One commentator writes this, that the world failed to recognize Stephen's greatness comes as no surprise. The world measures success by popularity, prestige, material wealth, and thus fails to understand true greatness. After all, they killed Jesus, they beheaded Paul, executed Peter, and persecuted the church. Although the people judged Stephen a blasphemer and killed him, he was one of the most noble and powerful men who ever lived. It is no exaggeration to place him on par with the likes of Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, John the Baptist, and the apostles. Have you ever thought much about Stephen? Does he even enter into your list of the great men of Scripture? One of the tenderest scenes in the whole of the Bible in Acts later is when the church will gather around the Apostle Paul when he has committed himself to going up to Jerusalem knowing full well that it will mean his arrest and knowing full well that the church will never see his face again. And there the church falls on their knees and weeps. And, and Paul says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? There is this mutuality of love. There's a similar thing with Stephen. He will die for his testimony. And we're told, we're told in... Uh, In chapter 8, uh, why have I misplaced it? I'm going to have to look. Why can't I find it with my eyes? There it is, 8, chapter 2. You, look at it. Chapter 8, verse 2. Some devout men buried Stephen. And made a loud lamentation over him. This is a man who was beloved by the church. This is a man who was faithful. This is a man who had an impact. This is a man that we would do well to pay greater attention to and to, to pattern our lives after. As the apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, so it is with Stephen. And, and, and you might ask, how is it that a man that good and that gracious, and that beloved, and that full of integrity and mercy? How is it that a man like this, one of those men of whom the world is not worthy, how is it that a man of this high a caliber ends up buried under a pile of stones at the hands of wicked men? 
The answer to that question, beloved, is enmity. It is the enmity in the heart of the world toward Christ. The sinner's hostility toward God and toward his truth. Jesus put it this way, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. You are watching the fulfillment of that very verse. Jesus is in heaven, but Jesus is alive in his people and Jesus is living out his life through his people. And therefore, as Jesus was hated, we are hated. As Jesus is persecuted, so his people are persecuted. But beloved, you have to note something here that that we just need to, again, grab ourselves by the lapels and acknowledge it. You will never be hated for, for being nice. It wasn't for the miracles and the signs and wonders that that Stephen was rejected. It was for the truth that he preached. And my friends, we will never nice anybody into the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't work that way. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Stephen had all the nice in the world. But Stephen was also faithful to preach the gospel of Christ to a world that would oppose him. And that was the issue. Well, that's the man. That's his description. Let's come to the opposition, secondly, of Stephen in verse 9. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including this Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, some from Cilician Asia, rose up and were arguing with Stephen. It's a, it's a little unwieldy for us who are living in 21st century America. These might be unfamiliar places to us. You probably remember what a synagogue is or was in this day. It was a smaller assembly of Jewish people who would, would it, it took 10 men to set up a synagogue so you could start one There were many, many synagogues, uh, even in Jerusalem itself, and these smaller local assemblies uh, are are where the the Jews would gather to teach the scriptures. They would read, and they would pray, and they would give and distribute alms, and they would worship there. But it was more than that. It was also used for theological education, for elementary training for children. They would discuss community issues. It was a place where they would share meals together. Some even provided housing for for visiting people who would come to Jerusalem for the feasts or whatever, and they could find a place to rest their heads there at the synagogue. It's a group of men from this synagogue who are Hellenists, as Stephen is a Hellenist, who are, who are going to butt heads with Stephen. And there's a lot of discussion here in the commentaries about whether there are uh, one synagogue with 
comprised of, of all of these groups of men or whether there are five synagogues, each of them individually uh, located, or whether there are everything in between. There, there's, there's an opinion for how many there were, and I, I don't have the answer to the question. I don't know. I don't know that it really matters. What we do know is this, that the opponents of the truth are coming from places outside Jerusalem. They probably returned to Jerusalem either because they're drawn by the feast and they stayed, or they've come and they've, they've retired here, they've returned to their homeland. Most of them would have been very, very zealous for the traditions of the Jews. They would have had uh, a great interest in the cultural practices and all that was handed down from Moses and from the, the rabbis over the, over the centuries. The freedmen were a group of people who were so-called freed because they had been enslaved uh, after Pompey conquered Jerusalem right before Christ was born, just about 100 years before, well, not even that, 60, 63 B.C. Pompey captured Jerusalem and a number of Jews were taken captive as slaves to Rome. And these former slaves were eventually gathered uh, they were let free and they were gathering together again to, to form a synagogue that was fiercely Jewish and it was, it was steeped in the traditions and the culture of, of Judaism and hence we, we understand why there's such a, a knee-jerk reaction to the message that Stephen was preaching. Cyrenians and Alexandrians were two significant cities in North Africa and Cilicia and Asia you know our Roman provinces in Asia Minor. Paul was from Tarsus, which was the leading city of Cilicia. And it is interesting to note that Paul may have been a part of these very early discussions, this debate going on in the synagogue. Whatever the case, however we put this together with the information that we've been supplied, what we do know is that they begin to debate hotly with Stephen. And Luke doesn't give us any of the details about what it was precisely that they were debating about, but we can infer those things from reading through chapter 7 and even concerning the things that, that they accuse him of here. What was it that Stephen preached? Well, undoubtedly he preached Christ as the crucified, risen, ascended, and returning Messiah of Israel. I would guess that he probably taught, given some of the things that are said here, that Jesus was the fulfillment, that prophet that would be greater than Moses, whom God would send, Deuteronomy 18, 15. I'm sure that Paul asserted the inability of the law of Moses to save from sin. Charles has been preaching on this very thing in the first hour, and, and even among Christians, we still wrestle to try and articulate clearly what part and place does the law have in life. These people were steeped in the law. They had been taught the law. They relished in the law. They thought by the law they could recommend themselves to God. And undoubtedly, Stephen had attacked that whole method. The law is no ladder to climb to heaven. The law is a hurdle over which sinners stumble and it points you to your need for your Messiah. Those were fighting words. 
I'm sure Stephen preached as Christ is the fulfillment of the law. I'm sure he preached that Christ fulfilled the prophecies and the types and the shadows of the Older Testament. I'm sure he taught regarding the temple, the very thing that Jesus taught, that something greater than the temple is here. Jesus himself as the dwelling of God with man. I'm sure he presented Jesus as God's blameless and sacrificial lamb, the one and only substitute for sinners. I'm sure he taught that salvation is not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. I'm sure he taught them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come to the Father but by him. You see, you speak these words about Christ in that day and in that context, you're going to find yourself being opposed and stringently so. Can I tell you, though, that if you speak these words, if you teach these things, even in our day, you can God talk all day long. The Mormons will nod their head. The JWs will, 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 will affirm all the God talk you have to offer them. It is the name of Jesus that offends. And it is the name of Jesus that Stephen is proclaiming, and that is why, beloved, he, he receives the kind of response he does. And Stephen is using their scriptures to demonstrate it. Look at verse 10. The text tells us that they were unable to oppose the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. And I take that reference to the Spirit there to be God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. They were unable to oppose his wisdom. Why? Because it's the wisdom of God. That's foolishness to men. But it is wisdom nonetheless. He preached the truth about Christ. He was upholding the the glorious gospel before the eyes of these men. And they are completely frustrated in their ability to push back against his insight and his argument. They can't spar with him. The spirit-filled Stephen is, is simply picking them apart. Humanly speaking, it's one against many, but ironically, the one is winning. The many are losing. It's that uh, it's such a terrible illustration, but it's that, it's that Western we've all watched. The guy who walks into the bar and all the bad guys are gathered and the bad guys are going out the windows and the doors. It's one on 50. And Stephen is laying waste to them by his wisdom and his insight. Again, he's just like Jesus, whose answers left his opponents utterly stymied and silent. Stephen has got them flummoxed and stumped and baffled and off balance. And if you've ever been there on the short end of an argument like that, you know how uncomfortable that is. There is an echo here of Jesus' promise to his disciples in Luke 21, 15. Do you remember it? For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. The Spirit is the one arguing through Stephen. 
and the argument is so airtight, they can't deflate him. And Stephen is simply trampolining, if that's a word, on their pride by the force of the Spirit's wisdom. And so they do what any self-respecting group of men will do when they've been humbled intellectually, and that is they're going to physically assault him. That's what guys do. When you run out of arguments, you just start calling names, and then you beat somebody. This brings us thirdly to the misrepresentation of Stephen in verses 11 to 14. Note these words, they're important. Stephen did nothing wrong here. Verse 11, then they secretly introduced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Listen, that's a lie. He had never spoken blasphemous words. The word order to me is intriguing too. These men throw Moses right up before God. Blaspheming God, well, that's a problem, but you know, he blasphemed Moses. These men were secretly introduced. They had to be coached to bear this testimony against Stephen. And it is deliberate misrepresentation, again, just as it was with Jesus. Turn over to Mark chapter 14. And verse 55. Here's Jesus standing before this same group of people, the high priests, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. Here's the Sanhedrin again. Verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were seeking to obtain testimony against Jesus. Stop. They were not seeking the truth. They were seeking to obtain testimony against Jesus. This is a kangaroo court. They wanted something to pin on Jesus so that they could put him to death. And they were not finding any, for many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not inconsistent. In other words, they found people to bear false testimony against Jesus, but you know, they were the low-rent guys on the street corner. These were not guys who could get their stories straight, and they were contradicting one another. And some standing up were giving false testimony against him, saying, we ourselves heard him say, I will destroy this sanctuary made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And not even in this was their testimony consistent. Is that true? Is that what Jesus had said? I will destroy this sanctuary made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. What had Jesus said? John chapter 2, verse 18. The 
The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus had just cleansed the temple. Where's your authority? Jesus answered them, verse 19, destroy this sanctuary. He didn't say he was going to do it. There's nothing here about hands. He says, destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up. Those were his actual words. And the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this sanctuary, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking, John records, about the sanctuary of his body. So that when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus had only spoken truth. But liars will be liars. And friends, sometimes we still haven't let this sink in deeply enough. We still get frustrated when we get misrepresented. We still get agitated with the people of this world when they, when they misunderstand us and they misconstrue our words and they misunderstand our actions. And, 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 and you're thought evil of when you're doing what's right. And Peter talked about that, that we should not fear the intimidation of the world, but that we should continue to strive to do what is right and good in this world. Let, the, let our good works shine before men, understanding full well that they will impugn us for that very thing. In a spiritual sense, they're going to look at you and call you teacher's pet. But what I want you to anchor away is don't get frustrated over that. You won't see any frustration in Stephen as he goes through this. He's taking it like the full measured man that he is. He understands the way things go down in this world. And this world is not for Jesus. They're against Jesus. And if you're going to be for him, then they will be against us too. But we endure it well, like our Savior. We, we, when we are reviled, do not revile in return. And while suffering, we utter no threats. But we keep entrusting ourselves to him who judges righteously. And we, we submit ourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, knowing that at the proper time, what? He'll exalt us up and out of our trouble. But in the meantime, we just keep casting our cares on him because he cares for us. I've told you over and over that one of my great prayers in this study of this great book is that somehow the experience that we see of of the men and women of Christ here in the book, serving him, preaching him, and then suffering for him, that somehow we would get on that train, that we would step out of that Americanized Christianity that's just forever seeking some sort of easy, you know, flower-laden path to heaven hoping that nobody really finds out and and we don't have to really face any trouble. Friends, that's unfaithfulness. Christ has suffered. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you, he says. And therefore, with Peter, we should arm ourselves with that purpose. We should ready ourselves to be faithful. We should deal with that part of us that, that... resists and is afraid of whatever suffering may come our way. Friends, may it never be that way. 
Stephen is a great example of a man who's fully aware of what it's going to cost him. It becomes very aware very quickly. This thing picks up a head of steam so fast. And it does so because they misrepresented what he said, and then they, they threw the, the charge of all charges. They, they tried to label him as a blasphemer. And here we should probably take this in the broader sense of just, you know, uh, the Jews never spoke what Dave's here. Professor Zemek used to call the ineffable tetragrammaton. You could not speak that unspeakable four-letter word, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. They're not blaspheming God by speaking, or Stephen's not, by speaking the name of Yahweh. They're, they're thinking in terms of the fact that he's, he's attacking the temple and he's attacking Moses. And these are things that are precious to them. Blasphemy can be defined as just speaking evil of anything that God deems sacred. His name, his law, his temple, one of his representatives. But here's what you need to know, that it was a capital crime to blaspheme in Israel. This is very serious stuff. This is the charge that trumped all other charges. They leveled it at Jesus and they are now leveling it at Stephen. Verse 12, they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes. It's almost as if they're beginning to orchestrate this thing. They've, they're, they're, they're stirring up one group and then the next and then the next. They bring in the, the, the base section and then the, the, the woodwinds, and, and they're bringing in this opposition to Christ one at a time, the people, the elders, the scribes, and they came up to him, this very violent word, and they dragged him away and brought him to the Sanhedrin. They rush upon Stephen, and they will rush upon him again, and they dragged him away. That's a term that conveys sudden violence or forceful seizure and aggressive apprehension. They accosted him. They ambushed him. And then they bring him before the Sanhedrin. And we don't have a timeline for this, but things seem to be happening rapidly. Notice again, verse 13, they put forward, and Luke records it again, false witnesses. They, he wants us to understand that, that Stephen is, is pure in all of this. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man never ceases speaking words against this holy place and the law. And the first thing you learn when you come to Christ and you begin to understand the word of God, you learn that Christians can't say can't. And then the next thing you learn is that you you ought to avoid words like never and always. These guys are speaking in hyperbole. It should have caused people to be suspicious of them. This man never ceases speaking words against this place. He's always speaking against the temple. He is perpetually undermining the law of Moses. He is always speaking of this Jesus who who ultimately is going to mean the end of everything that we hold dear if we don't take care of him. For we have heard him say that this Jesus, the Nazarene, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Stephen's in trouble 
And then we get one of the most intriguing verses and kind of mysterious verses in all the Bible. Look at verse 15. This is the approbation of Stephen. This is his approval. Verse 15, here he is standing before the Sanhedrin, and it says they fixed their gaze on him. That's the same phraseology that's used, same, same language that's used when the disciples were watching Jesus and they fixed their gaze on him as he went up into heaven. These august men are captured by something in Stephen's face. They fixed their gaze on him and all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin saw his face like the face of of an angel. They must have been bewildered by the disposition of this man. I I would like to have seen what that looked like. I don't know what the face of an angel looks like, but I think we can safely assume that because angels behold the glory of God, that angels are are glorious in their appearance. And you remember that whenever anybody encounters an angel in the scripture, there's always fear and terror. There's white and there's gleaming and there's there's all of this. There was something in Stephen's face that was radiant. Something that was beyond any normal human appearance. And again, time after time in our encounters with these guys, you think to yourself, you would think at some point something like this would cause you pause. You would say there's something different here. Something must be going on. There's nothing said here about shining, but the the most, maybe the the scriptural equivalent of this, the closest we could get is is Moses coming off the mountain. And you remember that his face shone for for a period of time. The glory of God shone in his face. Stephen somehow is reflecting divine glory and we can only guess. But this statement by Luke, the fact that he records this, tells us again that Stephen had the pleasure of God upon him, the presence of God with him, the the approval of God for his faithfulness. And he will bear that faithful testimony before these lions who will tear him to pieces. Three quick takeaways this morning as we wrap up. Number one, Certainly in Stephen, we find a godly man of incredible character and spiritual maturity, and we we need to have, as I'd said already, a much higher regard for him, and we should imitate his faith. We should all aspire to be full, like Stephen was, of the Spirit and of the Scripture and of courage and wisdom and grace and faith. We should imitate Stephen as he imitates Christ. And we also should see in his example that here's a man who's faithful. Note this. We've been seeing Peter and the apostles. We've seen John included preaching and teaching. Here we find a man who is not an apostle. He's, he's, he's a godly man, no doubt, but he holds no official office. And yet he is preaching and standing as a powerful example for the church that we would follow in his footsteps as he's following in Christ's. Secondly, Stephen stands as a testimony to the church that 
Preaching is the responsibility and privilege of every saint. Don't let yourself lay hold of that excuse which says that unless you're an apostle or unless you're a pastor, then you really have no call whatsoever to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a mandate, beloved, that goes to all of us and it should be a joy for us to stand just as Stephen did to testify of the God who saved us. Stephen was saved by the gospel and then he undertook seeing others being saved by the gospel no matter the cost to him personally. And the third thing I think we can take from this, and there are, there are more, but the third thing I think is this. We, we need to, to embrace our call to do, in the words of the Apostle Paul, to, to do our part in filling up the sufferings of Christ. Paul speaks that way in Colossians 1.24, that he is doing his part in his suffering under the persecution of ungodly men. He is doing his part in filling up the suffering of Christ. Now listen, Christ suffered once for all and sufficiently for our sins. That's not what Paul's talking about. What he is talking about is that Christ, while he was persecuted on earth and while he suffered death at the hands of godless men, Christ's suffering continues. This world is still opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this world would still like to take additional shots at the Lord Jesus Christ. The head is in heaven. They can't reach it. But what can they reach? The body. And that's clear in this text, is it not? Do you remember the theme of this book? The continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his spirit through the apostles. You remember those words of Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. Luke says, all that Jesus began to say and do. Wait a minute. Is Jesus still saying and doing? Yeah, absolutely he's saying and doing. And the world has rejected Christ and they still reject Christ and therefore as we are faithful to represent Christ, are you tracking with me? If we're faithful as a church, as individuals to represent Christ, the more we're like Christ, the more we will suffer. Paul uses that or Peter uses that very language in 1 Peter 4 when he says this, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. This isn't a strange thing that's happening to you. Listen, but to the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation if you are insulted for the name of Jesus. You're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. What was the response of the apostles after they suffered in Acts 5? Look at it. What was their response in verse 41? 
after being beaten, they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. You see, Christ suffered for us, didn't he? Vicariously, he suffered in our place. And beloved, it follows, doesn't it, that we in return should suffer vicariously in his place. And again, be careful. I'm not saying that anything efficacious is accomplished by the suffering of the church. We're not earning any favor with God. It's just our duty as slaves to bear up under sorrows, suffering unjustly. Philippians 1.27, do you remember? We've been double graced, not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer for his sake. For his sake, for the name, in his place. See, Luke is being super deliberate here to demonstrate how Stephen's life parallels that of Christ's. Like Jesus, Stephen is full of the Spirit, full of grace and truth. Like Jesus, Stephen is full of power. Like Jesus, Stephen demonstrates wisdom from above. Stephen shared in Christ's suffering and mistreatment. He was hated without a cause. And like Jesus, Stephen will suffer death at the hands of wicked men. This day is the last day on Stephen's Stephen's life on earth. And what a day it was to walk in the very footsteps of Christ. And Stephen will know the honor of the Father and he will be ushered into glory with Christ forever. Beloved, Jesus is still doing, still teaching, still building, still carrying on. He is accomplishing his purposes and he's doing it through his people. The question is, is he doing it through you? And is he doing it through us? And I just encourage you to take an honest look in the mirror. I don't mean that in any way to bring conviction and guilt. There's no accusation in any of that. The question is, though, do you see it in your life? Do you see the work of Christ in your life? That he is accomplishing in you his very likeness. That there are parallels between you and Jesus. You may not be Stephen yet in your Christian life. One day you will transcend Stephen's Holiness. <laughs> Think of it. You, me. Amazing. But wouldn't it be good if there were a historian writing now who could look at your life and draw parallels between your character and Christ's? Who could draw parallels between the suffering that you've endured in this life and Christ's? who could draw parallels at the, from the impact of your life by the grace of God to that of Christ's. I want that for you. I want that for me. I want that for us as a church, that we might live each day with that kind of devotion and that kind of passion to do our part as Christ's people, to uphold the glory of Christ and the power of his saving gospel. May God help us. To that end, let's stand together and we'll close with a hymn adoring the glories of Christ and I'll come up.
and pray.